Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. If you would go ahead and take your Bibles with me and go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We'll be continuing in our series on identity this evening. But as we're doing that, I want you to think about this question. Do you ever wonder how people pray? I've been thinking about some of the prayers I've seen or come across lately. Here's a couple of them. First one is, Dear God, My prayer this coming year is a fat bank account and thin body. Please don't mix them up like you did last year. (laughs) Dear Lord, as your humble servant, let me prove that winning the lottery will not change me. But I probably relate best to this one right now. Um, As this mother was going by, she heard her child praying, Now I lay me down to rest. I hope to pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take. I think we probably all struggle sometimes in the area of prayer, uh, at least sometimes. And maybe sometimes our prayers sound like these and we kind of laugh and think of how ridiculous sometimes they are. And I, I hope that your prayer life is better than these that I've just shared with you. But tonight we're going to look at Paul's prayer report of how he is praying for the Ephesians. And as we read this tonight, I want you to keep in mind that as Paul is writing this letter, where is he located? He's in prison. So this that he's writing, this is one of his prison prayers of how he is praying for the church at Ephesus. And Yet his prayer, though he's in prison, his prayer for the Ephesians is much deeper than the prayers that we often pray. I know it's deeper than probably the prayer I would be praying if I were in prison. I wouldn't probably be thinking all that much about the church that I left many years ago. We pray oftentimes based on our need, our perceived needs. But in verses 15, beginning in verse 15, is Paul's prayer report. Now, before we dive into this, there's been some debate about the length of this prayer. Some think that uh, this prayer ends at verse 19, um, and that the following verses, verses 20 through 23, are a hymn. Others think that this prayer continues all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. However, there's no indication that there's any break between 19 and 20 and trying to reconstruct a hymn from just verses 20 through 23 is somewhat problematic. And also going all the way through chapter 2 and verse 10 is not very likely either. And so we're going to say that this prayer goes from 19 through verse 23, but we're only going to cover uh, up through verse 19. I'm sorry, I said 19 through 20. It's 15 through 23. But we're only going to cover to verse 19 tonight. And as I near the end of tonight's message, you'll understand uh, perhaps why in a greater 
uh, understanding. But the first part of Paul's prayer that we're going to look at, uh, this prayer for the Ephesians, focuses on thanksgiving and on the report that he's heard. And the second part moves on to his supplication for them. And as we read both of these parts, I want us to think about how they relate to the Ephesians and relate to our identity in Christ. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time tonight that we get to come together. We have the opportunity to study your word together, to sing praises to your name. And Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of those that are here. That Lord, when secular events are going on, it's so easy to, to turn aside or to, to go towards that which looks perhaps more attractive, something that's different from what we're used to, a, a break out of the, the normal, ordinary uh, ways of our lives. But Lord, one of the most important things that we do as Christians is gather together, study together, worship together. So Lord, I thank you for this time tonight. I pray that you'd speak to us through this writing of Paul, through your Holy Scripture, and Lord, that we would leave challenged, encouraged, and on fire for you. Praise in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Look with me, beginning in verse 15. We're just going to read 15 and 16 for, for now. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul begins with gratitude for their spiritual identity. Gratitude for their spiritual identity. First, he looks at who they are. Verse 15 says, For this reason, or your version may say, This is why, it's pointing back to what we've already studied so far in this series. What we've studied so far in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul has demonstrated who the Christian is in Christ. He's shown our identity comes from God. He says the believer has been chosen before the foundation of the world. He says the believer has been predestined to be adopted as children. The believer has been redeemed and has been forgiven of their sin, and the believer has been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We've already covered all these, but this provides the foundation of who the Ephesians were and are who we are in Christ. This identity is no way based upon what they did. It's not based upon what we do as believers. It is solely based on what God has done for us on our behalf through Christ and by the Spirit. When we trust in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now Paul will later write in this same letter that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. Right? This is what Martin Luther clung to. This idea that we are justified not by works of righteousness, but we are justified by what Christ has done on the cross, and by faith we believe in him. So the identity changes first. God works on our behalf first, and we submit to Christ, and he transforms us. And as we grow and this realization of the change that has taken place in us, our lives begin to look different than what they did before. And that's exactly what Paul says happens with the Ephesians. He goes on to say that ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and of the love that you have for the saints. These two things coming together. Now remember that Paul had ministered in the church at Ephesus for some time. But now he's been gone for them from, for some time as well. Yet he gets a report about them. He received word about how great their faith was in Christ. That He knew that they had placed their faith in Christ initially. And in fact, he had gone to some churches and they had made that same decision and then turned away from it. Um, I think it was Wednesday, Chris was talking about the Galatians and how Paul's letter to the Galatians is not, I'm thankful for you, but it's, here's where you're wrong. Well, Paul indicates in verse 13, if we look back a little bit, that he knows that when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they made a decision to follow Christ. And they had not turned from that, but they remained true to that. It was a continuing faith. It was an active faith. It wasn't one that ended. And unfortunately, there are many times when someone might make a declaration of faith. Uh, perhaps they went and heard this inspiring sermon. Uh, they spent a significant amount of time separated out, perhaps, for a youth camp or a, a revival services or something like that, where they're in the Word frequently. And they make this decision that they're going to follow the Lord. Yet, sadly, it's not long before they forget about what had taken place there. Their passion fades and their fire is quenched. And while they were zealous for a time, suddenly you can't even find them when you go to look for them. But that's not what happened here with the Ephesians. Paul received reports that they had continued in their faith, they were active in their faith in the Lord, and that had evidence to back it up, because it wasn't just a doctrinal faith, it wasn't just what they believed, it wasn't a stale legalistic faith either. It was a dynamic faith that was evidenced by the love that they demonstrated towards one another. The term love, they understood is wrapped up in the idea of seeking to give rather than to possess. They were actively giving of themselves to one another, seeking the highest good, seeking the will of God for each person was in that church. Paul says the love was demonstrated toward the saints. Think back, how did Jesus say the world would know that we were followers of Christ? If you love one another. Now think of how radically the lives of the Ephesians, the, the believers in that church had to have been. Remember the Ephesians were followers of Artemis. They had worshipped in this great temple of Artemis that was in Ephesus. They had placed their faith in her. But then they heard the gospel. And the gospel arrested them. It took hold of them. It took them captive in the best possible way. And it delivered them from their idol worship, their false god worship. And it delivered them to the true God. It changed everything about them. For as they embraced their identity in Christ, they were transformed, not by their own works, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says they had noteworthy Christian character. They had a, a living and active faith. I'm challenged by this idea because I think 
if someone were to receive a report of me and my spiritual life, would they get the same report? What about you? When someone hears about you, are they thankful for you and your faith in Christ and your love for his church? I don't know how many times I hear believers say, well, I love Jesus, but I can't stand those church people. But Paul says they had faith in the Lord Jesus and they had love for the church. So as Paul's sitting in prison, he hears about their act of faith. And he hears of their love for one another, and he he says he always remembers them in his prayers. He's always praying for them, thanking God that they have continued in their faith. He's encouraged by them. He's thankful for them. And I think, would someone say the same about me? Would someone say the same about you? Well, Paul was thankful the Ephesian church had recognized who they were in Christ and that they had embraced fully that identity, but also he wanted to move them further from where they were to a greater, uh, greater understanding. He wanted to challenge them to grow in their faith. And so in the second part of this prayer report, he goes on in verse 17 through 19. Look at his petition, what he's praying for them. Beginning in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty Strength, And then he goes on to show an example of that. And we'll come back to that here in just a minute. But what, what is Paul praying for them? Well, he's praying, God, give them spiritual eyesight. Give them spiritual insight. Help them to see and to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Now, before we go further into what exactly Paul is praying for the Ephesians, I want to take a moment to notice how Paul is praying for them. Because I think it's important. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But as you read Paul's prayer for them, you cannot miss it unless you're just absolutely blind to it. There are those who would argue against the Trinity, but in Paul's formula here, I don't think you can easily dismiss it. Paul says that he asked God, The God of Jesus, the glorious Father is the word the NIV uses there. And and Paul directs this prayer towards God the Father. Um, Many versions will translate this glorious Father as the NIV has here. Others will translate it as God of glory. Is one right and one wrong? No, I think they're both right. It's just uh, how exactly are you going to translate this? Because the idea here is that God is the God of glory. And this is consistent with the Jewish and New Testament understanding of God. He's the God of glory in multiple ways. He is the Father who is glorious. We can all agree with that. But it goes further than that. He's not only a glorious Father, but he's the Father to whom all glory belongs. Glory is also the essence of of God's being. 
He is glory. So when Paul calls him the father of glory, there's a depth here that I, I really we could spend all evening discussing just this aspect, but we don't have time. Um, but in the immediate context of Ephesians 1, here's what I think Paul is trying to get at. God has revealed his nature toward us as worthy of our praise. He is the glorious father here because he has revealed himself in his election and his predestination for us and his redemption of us in the revelation of his will for us and in the sealing of his Holy Spirit. All of our identity in Christ is given to us by God the Father. And how glorious that is. How worthy of praise he is simply because of these facts. How often do you stop and think about this? To pause and give God the glory that he deserves because of who we are. Not in our own self, but in what Christ has done for us. But Paul goes on to say that this glorious Father is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've talked about God the Father. Here he, he talks about Jesus, the, the Son. And I think each of these four words are significant here. We're not going to dive deep into each of these, but just something to think about. Our, first of all, our indicates a personal relationship. He is we have a relationship that's established when you believe in Christ. He is not just the Savior. He is our Savior. He is more than the Lord. He is our Lord. We claim him and he claims us. It's easy to bypass over that because we think, oh, well, that's a duh. You know, he's our Lord. But he is personal. He wants to have a relationship with us. He died for us. But then he goes on to say he is our Lord. And Lord is a term that has various meanings and could simply mean that he is uh, the Lord over your life, the one to whom you give your allegiance. But often it was used in reference to Yahweh. And I think Jesus here, and it's not a stretch to say this because it's true. Jesus' Lord is more than just saying that he is your boss because he is divine. He is God. But then the next word reminds us that he's not just God. He's also human. Because Jesus of Nazareth was a man. He was physically born. He was in a physical place and time. He is a historical figure. He's not some myth. He's not simply a man, but he's not simply God either. He's both God and man. But then the final term that he uses is Christ, which points to Jesus as the awaited Messiah who would fulfill the expectations of the Jews. And now we've covered all those in other sermons. We're not going to dive into any further into each of those tonight, but just so far we've got God the Father, we've got God the Son, and then in his prayer, Paul asked that the Father would send the spirit of wisdom and revelation. What's he talking about here? Because some have tried to argue this is a human spirit. There's not, not any word for the or holy here, but just the spirit. And, and in many of your Bibles, it probably does capitalize the S for spirit. Because 
scholars have recognized this is speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who grants wisdom to the believer. But as I was reading different commentators on this, most of them kind of skip over this idea of wisdom and go to discuss the second word, the revelation, the apocalypsis, from which we get apocalypse, revelation. Revelation, we talked about this morning, the hidden mysteries of God. Revelation is the hidden mystery of God that is unveiled by God. It can't be discovered by our own human means. It's not something that we go, oh, look at how wise we are, and we go and penetrate the deep mysteries of God. It cannot be discovered by human means. 1 Corinthians, we read and referred to several times this morning, that it is only the Spirit of God who understands the mind of God and who can reveal it to the people of God. The human spirit cannot possibly disclose the hidden mysteries of God. But notice back in verse 8 what Paul had said there. Verse 8, chapter 1. He lavished on us, that is believers, he lavished on believers with all wisdom and understanding so that we could understand his revelation toward us. Another, I think, important point to ponder here is that God is not praying that God would send the Holy Spirit to them. Because as believers, the Holy Spirit had already come upon them. He had already been imparted to them. But what Paul's praying here is for a specific manifestation of the Spirit upon the believers in Ephesus. He's praying for a precise action of the Spirit among God's people. And so now that we've established how he's praying, what is he praying for God to do through the Spirit here? What is he asking for the Ephesians? Well, Paul wants the believers at Ephesus to grow in their understanding, not just of overall wisdom, not just of revelation, but their understanding of God himself. He wants them to know God better. And so he prays this prayer that the Spirit will open the eyes of their hearts that they would be enlightened. He's praying, God, grant them spiritual eyesight because we are all born spiritually blind. But at the moment a person repents of their sin, at the moment they put their faith in Christ, they become justified. The believers declared to be righteous by God. The believers also at that same time regenerated by the power of the Spirit, born again in Christ Jesus. And just like a newborn baby, when they first come out and they open their eyes, their eyes are not developed fully. Right? It, they can only see a certain distance. They can only recognize certain features. They can only see certain colors. Their new eyesight is new. And just... In the same way, when we become Christians, we have new eyesight. All of a sudden, things that didn't make sense before begin to make sense, where what was before was darkness, we began to see a little clearer. But it takes time. It takes time for the child's eyes to develop. And as the child is growing, his eyesight is examined by a, an eye doctor. 
But sometimes problems creep in. Sometimes their eyesight doesn't develop properly. And I remember my younger brother, when he first got his glasses, I didn't get glasses till I went into the military. I was trying to shoot the 300-meter the target. Well, actually, I wasn't. That was the problem. They said, why do you keep missing the 300-meter target? I'm like, what are you talking about? And that, that one? They said, no, it's further out than that. And I said, I, there's nothing out there. You're crazy. And so I had to get glasses. Uh, but my brother had poor eyesight from the day he was born. We just didn't know it. But one day he got his glasses. And we I kind of still make fun of him for this. So, uh, But he came in, had his glasses on, and he was just standing in the hallway staring at the wall and going and rubbing it. I said, what are you doing? He said, I always thought this was just flat. I didn't realize it had texture on it. He had never before seen the detail there. Chelsea, about a year ago, um, she had LASIK surgery. And as we were driving home, she had seen things. She'd been able to see them through her glasses. But I, I kind of chuckled at her because we were driving home from after having the surgery, and she wanted to read every road sign for me because she could. Here's the point. As we grow in sanctification, our spiritual eyesight should improve. We should begin to see new things as we become more mature in the faith. And so Paul prays that God would give to the Ephesians the Holy Spirit's insight and disclosure. They would come to know more of God himself. He didn't want them to just become more acquainted with what God does necessarily. He wanted them to know God personally. He wanted them to know God more intimately. He wanted their knowledge of God, their spiritual eyesight that began the moment they heard and believed the gospel of Jesus, he wanted to, to grow and to be refined and to be able to see more detail, be able to see more clarity and understand who God was. And so he pointed out in three areas particularly. The first we find in verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. To know the hope of God's calling. Paul wanted the Ephesians to know the hope. This is the word elpis here that we translate to mean hope, and it's, it's much more robust of a word than the word hope that we usually use in English. Because English is kind of imprecise. We, we use the same word to mean multiple things. And so, for instance, I may hope that tomorrow when I go to work, I'll get a raise, get more compensation for my time. Probably not going to happen, but it's a possibility. If I hope for that, it's somewhat unfounded. My kids may hope that I bring home pizza tomorrow evening. They may not, but they may. But we're not talking about this kind of hope. Biblical hope refers to a sense of trust or a sense of reliance upon someone. It refers to a confidence. It refers to a security that can be found. And in the Old Testament, the hope of the righteous is always directed toward the eternal God who will protect his chosen people. 
And who are we? His chosen people, chosen before the foundation. So there's a a confidence that God will ultimately deliver his people. And this hope goes back to the redemption that was in verse 7. It looks back to verses 9 and 10 where he said, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan. When? For the right time. To bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So Paul here shows where we're all going in Christ. Paul refers to the believer's call to salvation, that believers are chosen by the Father to be his children. He's adopted us into his family. That is where our confidence is found. If he has adopted us, then he will come for us. I'm going to come back in a minute and, and wrap kind of this section with a bow, but right now, let's go on to the second part of verse 18. Because there's more that Paul wants them to know. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Know the wealth of God's inheritance. Now, you notice I said it's God's inheritance, not our inheritance. Right? Paul wanted them to know the wealth, the the riches of God's inheritance. It's not our inheritance. We have our inheritance in Christ. If you look back to verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But here, Paul flips this around. This is not the inheritance which we receive. It's the inheritance which God receives. What is God's inheritance? We are. The saints, those who believe in Christ, are his inheritance. God will receive the glory from his church because of what he has invested in us. Because God has chosen us, because he has redeemed us, because he has adopted us, because he has sealed us, we are his possession. He takes the promise that was given to the Israelites and he applies it to the New Testament believers. He says, you are will be my people, and I will be your God. His possession is his church, his saints. We are his now, but he will fully gain this inheritance when the saints are no longer walking on this earth, when he comes and takes us back into his presence. And so not only do we receive an inheritance from God, but we are his inheritance. He purchased us, in order to inherit us. And while we can look at the past and see what God has done for us, which is really what the first part of verse 18 is talking about, we can also look forward to when God will receive us fully. Our hope is rested on what's already happened, but the inheritance will come later. Now, in thinking about this, I was thinking about what often happens for me around birthdays and Christmas time, at least in our household. And maybe this happens with some of you too because, you know, your, your kids get older and you move out uh, and you, it's just you and your wife or something. But here's, here's what happens. I see something that I want and so I buy it, but it's around my birthday, it's around Father's Day, it's around Christmas. So Chelsea says, well, do you need this right now? And I say, 
no, I, I don't guess I need it right now. So she said, okay, I'm going to wrap it up and put it under the tree, or I'm going to wrap it up for your birthday. And so I've bought this item. I purchased it. I took it home. Chelsea wrapped it. It's sitting in my living room. It's mine, right? But I haven't completely, fully received it yet. So it sits wrapped up, waiting for the appropriate time for me to open it. Who picked it out? Me. Who paid for it? Also me. Who does it belong to? Me again. But it's not yet fully mine until I open that wrapping and take full possession of it. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy by any means. But here's, this is what I was thinking of as I read this passage. God has chosen his believers. He's chosen those who place their faith and trust in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He has redeemed us. He's purchased us through Jesus and his blood. And now he's waiting for the perfect time to fully receive us. So we're in this, we are owned by God. We belong to him, but he hasn't fully brought it to pass because when he does, we, we won't be here. We'll be with him. But that day's coming. We're the gift that's waiting to be unwrapped. So Paul says, this is who you are. You're called. You have the hope. You're the inheritance. But he wanted the Ephesians to know one more thing about God. Verse 19. I'm going to go back and just read this from verse 18 to put these thoughts together. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his comparably great power for us who believe. Now the NIV puts a period there. There's not actually a period there. Um, it goes on to say that power is like the working of his mighty strength. Now, I've been looking forward to this part all week, and I told Joe this morning, I said, Joe, are you going to be here Sunday night? Because I want to make sure you're here for this. Because he posted on Facebook, I don't know if you saw this, about the anachronistic use of the word dynamite and the word dunamis earlier this week, and I knew I was preaching on this passage. And so I was like, I can't believe he posted that this week. So... If you saw Joe's post, he, he noted that many times we try to use the word dynamite backwards. We, we take this idea that we have of something that has come, come up afterwards. So the word dynamite is drawn from this word because it means power. But we can't go back and put this meaning on it in the Greek text. And so it means power, but it's not an explosive power necessarily. It's not an instantaneous a uh, massive thing that we think of when we think of dynamite, which has oftentimes been used in, in preaching. Um, actually, it's normally used just to speak generically of power, but if you look at the Septuagint and some of its uses there, it's one of its uses that is translated is from the Hebrew term sava, which actually means military power, which I thought was interesting. Um, because it refers more to the ability and the competence of God than this instantaneous and explosive power.
But that's just one of the Greek terms that God or that Paul uses here for power. There's actually four terms that all we translate all of them to mean power from the Greek in this. Now I'm not going to go into each one of them uh, because of time's sake, but uh, I, I think it would be if, if we did that we would miss the main idea because the dunamis is described literally here as according to the power of the power of his power. You know what it makes me think of? We were talking, Kevin and I were, and Brittany were talking about our churches that we came from. And we had a music minister that we would sing, There is Power in the Blood. And you know, there is power, power, wonder working. Well, he wanted to try to add as many powers in there as we could get. So it would be, there is power, 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 power in the blood. And so most of the time, by the time we got through that, I couldn't get to the in the blood part. It was just the, the power, 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 power. <sighs> but this is what I'm thinking of when I'm reading this, because we would, we think it's ridiculous to speak like this, but there is this power that is powerful, and it's power and it's power. That's basically how Paul's describing this, because these, per, these words all overlap, not in, to show the distinctive uses of each one, although some commentators will dive into that and look at how each one's used and all this. But I, th I think the overall point is to show how powerful God is. That he is so powerful, you need to multiply the word power times four so that you can just begin to comprehend his power. And the ways that we try to translate it in English are sometimes quite interesting. Uh, this one, uh, the NIV says, is incomparably great power. Some will say the greatness of his power. How wonderful and great and mighty is his power by the, the strength that he has. It's just unbelievable, this power that is God's. But what's even more unbelievable is that God grants it to us to use. It's this great action that we cannot describe. But Paul, in the next few verses, gives an example of how great God's power is. And Brady's going to look at that more with us next week. But here's how this is tied into the rest of this passage. The great power of God is available to us, his church. It's available to his children who believe. It is the kind of power that we need for the spiritual battles that he's going to talk about at the end of this letter. It's the battle that we have against, it's the power for the battle against hostile satanic powers that we encounter day by day. Not that we're looking for demons behind each tree, but we are involved in spiritual warfare. And we need the power of God to live the life that God would want us to live. The only way that we can live is by relying upon the power of God. And so he, he prays. He, he's praying that this understanding of God's great power and of his hope, of the hope that we have and of the inheritance that we are, that we would understand, that the Ephesians church would understand more fully, that we would see with spiritual eyes how great God is and how wonderful our identity is is when we are in him. This great hope that we have, it's not bound up in our power. It's not something that we're working for. It's something that God has already accomplished for us. The great inheritance is not by our works of righteousness, 
but by the immeasurable greatness of God's power. We neither purchase, we neither buy, nor do we sustain our own salvation. It's by God. God has purchased it for us. He is the one who holds our inheritance. He is the one who holds our salvation in his mighty hand. Jesus said that no one can take us from his hand. So the hope of God's calling on our lives, the wealth of God's inheritance, and the strength of God's power. These things we cannot understand on our own. We cannot understand these by our own wisdom. We cannot understand these by our own power. The eyes of our hearts must be opened, and we can't do it. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, this great minister to the churches, he prays for the Ephesian church. God, open their eyes. Open the eyes of their heart so that they might know you better. And do you know how I strive to pray as a minister in this church and as a follower of Christ, a fellow believer? How do I pray for you? Well, it stems down to two ways. First, if you're a believer, I pray that God will enlighten the eyes of your heart, that he would open them, give you spiritual insight, give you spiritual eyesight, that you would know him better, that you would become more mature in your understanding of who God is so that you will glorify him more. I pray that you become more spiritually mature each day and that you learn to rely and to cling on God, not just when times are difficult for you, but every single moment of every single day. And I hope that you're praying the same for me. But if you're here and you're not a believer, I pray that God's word is stirring your heart and that you long to be one of these chosen, one of these predestined, that you desire to have that relationship with God, that you can understand how much he loves you and this great power that he, he wants to give to you. I pray that God would lead you to understand who he is to the point that you accept the salvation he's offered and that you would turn the ownership of your life over to him, that not that you would be the king, but that you would make him king of kings as he is. So that's my prayer for you. Whether you're here and you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, I'm praying for you. Our church is praying for you. Our ministers are praying for you in this way. How are you going to respond to this? Well, if you're an unbeliever, I hope that it's by turning to belief. But if you're a believer, I hope that it's encouragement for you that you would grow in your spiritual knowledge to the glory of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. 
Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.